Today is Friday, March 6, 2020, time for episode 104 of the Barnhart Podcast. I've been doing my best to hide from the Wuhan flu, and there was speculation for a couple of days that Francis might have caught the Kung flu, and I've also read that dioceses are starting to ban holding hands during Mass, an abomination that's been going on since the 70s, and we need something out of China to scare the crap out of us to finally stop that crappy practice. But it also has some uh, dioceses banning communion on the tongue, even for traditional Latin Masses. And yet this pandemic, commonly known as the coronavirus or COVID-19, it's no more dangerous than a severe case of the common flu. You made the point on your blog, Anne, that this smells a whole lot like journalistic terrorism. Is that really all that's going on, or could there be more? Oh, I think there's probably a lot more to it. And I did say on the blog, this is this is full-blown economic terrorism. Um, the more you read and the more you look at at influenza as a as an extant paradigm in the world, and whether or not you want to call uh, this particular virus a, a type of influenza or you know something in that general category, um, you know this 150 people per day per day die in the United States of America in a normal year every single day of influenza. Every time you see an obituary and Mrs. Rosalie Beulah Hiffelfinger died of pneumonia aged 89 or died after a brief illness aged 89, what the vast majority of those are, especially if it specifically says that the person died of pneumonia, well, pneumonia from what? Where where did that pneumonia come from? Well, the vast majority of time, it came from influenza or something like influenza. 150 human souls per day, every day, including right now, die of influenza in the United States. Why is this different? Why is it that this thing is um, striking and killing mostly the elderly? The vast, vast majority of the people that it's hitting are people over 70 and especially over 80, people in their 80s and 90s, um, who have who have a severe pre-existing condition, meaning they they're already, you know, stricken with something. A lot of them have cancer. Um, you know, elderly people who are already in bad shape for whatever reason, for one reason or another, they're already weakened, and they get this just exactly like people every single day in the United States get influenza, it develops into a pneumonia, and it kills them. Why is this any different? And, you know, people are freaking out and so on and so forth. And, you know, I'm, I am far away from it. I am thousands and thousands of feet away from it. And so um, I, I just, there, people are asking me, are you, Anne, what, what, is your fear level of this? And boy, I got to tell you, my fear level of this for me personally is 0.000. Yeah, I've, I've, I've stocked up. I've got 10 pounds of spaghetti in the, in the, um, in the cabinet and I've got a bunch of lentils and stuff. Not because I'm afraid of, of this, this uh, coronavirus. 
I'm not afraid of that. Heck, I, pff, who knows? Who knows? This this thing has probably been around here um, longer than anyone wants to um, imagine, acknowledge, or believe. I had do you, I don't know super nerd if you remember but I don't know it's been about a month ago now we had we had scheduled to record and I got something that I called bronchitis and I you know I had a fever for 18 hours and I was coughing up bright orange horse glue for for a few days and I had to I had to bail I had to cancel on one of our recording sessions and pff, who knows I mean, I called it bronchitis. It was in the same general category as what an influenza would be. Who the hell knows? And you know, I'm 43 and a half years old. I have had in my life probably at minimum influenza 12 times. And that's that's lowballing it, severely lowballing it. I mean, you know, you get the flu or you get the seasonal flu every Every couple years, every three years, whatever. I mean, it's just, it's just part of life. Well, potentially, every- you can get it every single year. Uh, yeah. And, but if you're healthy and you're eating well, uh, something my wife likes to remind me to do is take my vitamin C and vitamin D and, and in the normal daily doses or for somebody who, I don't know, sits inside even during the summer and has tends to have pasty white skin because they're around computers too much, uh, yep. take more vitamin D. Apparently, you can't overdose on it. Um, I'm sure somebody mm-hmm. will email about that. Take lots of vitamin C. That the worst case scenario there, it just passes through your system and, and um yeah, that's that's the worst thing. Yeah, that can... You can't you can't hurt yourself on either vitamin C or vitamin D. But if I've you're pro- well stocked up on those on those vitamins though, it makes it really difficult for disease to set in. Well, yeah. And you know, if if you do get something, if it is your if it is your year, your every one year and three year, whatever it is, and you get the flu. And you're an, you're a normal adult human being. What happens? Just exactly is what's happening with the vast, vast, vast majority of people who are getting this. You get a fever. You go to bed for a day. You lay in your bed. You sweat. Your body does its work. It the the act of having a fever is what kills virus. There's nothing. To this day, you don't go to the doctor when you have a virus because there's no point. There's nothing. They're not. They can't give you anything. Antibiotics have no efficacy against viruses. It's absolutely. It's an exercise in futility, and it's dumb to go to the doctor if you come down with some sort of a viral seasonal flu thing. So you go to bed. You sweat. You're an adult. You shake it off. You've shaken it off within a few days. Um. When in my 43 and a half years, having had the flu at least a dozen times in my life, and it's probably, truth be told, it's probably closer to 20, but you know, I'm just going to lowball it. When have I ever in my life ever been tested for influenza? Um, that would be exactly never. Yeah, I mean, when when do adults come down with seasonal flu and go and get get some sort of a, a diagnostic laboratory test done? We're getting flu. People get the flu in the United States by the millions and millions and millions every year. I saw one guesstimation that said globally. Now that we're you know how many seven point. 7.5 or 7.6 or however many billion people there are, there there was an estimate that said that close to a billion human beings a year get some sort of influenza. It's never diagnosed. 
Nobody, nobody, there's no official record of any of this being kept anywhere. How does the government ever know that I got the flu? The government doesn't have any idea that I got the flu. None. Only if you were so, so sick, you had to go to the hospital and it was recorded that flu-like symptoms developed into something more serious like exactly. say, bronchitis or pneumonia. And that's one of the things uh, somebody was they're comparing numbers in a press conference with Trump recently. And, and make, I think it was Sanjay Gupta, that idiot. And uh, he was making the case that coronavirus is orders of magnitude more virulent and dangerous than the common flu. But he, the, it's already been shown that the numbers he's using is based on the, the number of people who have been admitted to the hospital. Among exactly. Those, among those, only the death, percent, death rate is only about 2 or 3%. We have no idea how many people have gotten Wuhan flu and maybe got a sniffle or two because they're, they're on the right doping of, of uh, vitamin C and D because their wife makes them, or mm -hmm. they just are sufficiently healthy that it just doesn't really knock them out. And so no big yeah. deal. They, t they take a day off, they work from home, and then they're back in the next day. That's right. They're, exactly. And, and, and the same thing with the common flu. You, you can make estimates and guesstimates to your heart's desire, but you have no idea how many people really – uh, got a strain of the flu and just never got symptoms to the point of having to present themselves to a healthcare professional. It's like yeah. trying, it's like trying to say with certainty how many people listen to the podcast. I have no clue. I can tell mm. how many downloads there are, but you know, I if you're if you're listening to the podcast through Spotify, let's say just for the sake of argument, let's say ten thousand people are listening to this podcast on Spotify. On our stats, I'm going to see one download because Spotify downloads it once and then distributes it on their network. <laughs> so how do I, there's, there's no way to really know. And of course, you also can't tell just because it was downloaded to somebody listen to it. Maybe somebody thinks that they're being smart and trying to charge me more bandwidth on Amazon S3 because they'll, hey, I'm going to download that stupid podcast and make them spend money on Amazon bandwidth. Well, <laughs> okay, <No. laughs> good, good try on that. The point being that whether we're talking about how many people really listen to the podcast versus how many people really got COVID-19 or just the common average flu, we have no idea. Oh, exactly. And, you know, in terms of the oh, the contagiousness and the spreading and all of this, hello, every year we all have the same conversations. Did you get a flu shot this year? Oh, it's going around. H have you have you had it? Oh, I had it last year, you know, but I got the shot this year or, you know, I haven't had a flu shot in years. Every time I've got, every time when I was in my 20s and 30s that I would get a flu shot, I would get a, a type of flu. And then it would be, and then you would read and it, they would say, well, you know, there's multiple strains. And so when you got your flu shot at Safeway or whatever it was, well, that was this and such strain and you pro and you probably got that and such strain. We all have these conversations every year about, did you get it? It's going around. Oh, everybody at school has it. Everybody at the office has it, blah, blah, blah. Why is this any different? Why is this any different whatsoever? Then there's another thing. I can't remember what exactly we all talked about on the last episode, but um, it was in two terms hours of talking and yakking. I don't remember either. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> but in terms of China, I, I have a link. I have a link. Um, three things about China. First of all, the air pollution in China in these cities is absolutely horrific. And so a lot of these people are, you know, grown adults in the prime of their life. But because the air pollution over there is so bad, 
And, you know, because human life means nothing to the Chinese, their air pollution is so bad that they're all walking around and they're normal functioning adults, but their lungs are already in a state of compromise. They're already messed up in terms of their lungs. So they have a vulnerability there. That's number one. Number two with the Chinese, those people smoke cigarettes like dragons. They smoke like dragons. And so and a lot of them smoke unfiltered, and including the elderly. And so they're, they're further compromised in their lungs in that sense. Then the other thing that is kind of the dirty little secret that a lot of us in the West are not really aware of, and it, it, we kind of don't think of the Chinese as being physically filthy, but they are physically filthy, especially in terms of bathroom habits. Um, they, a lot of them use squat toilets, public squat toilets without any sort of um, um, barrier between, you know, holes in the ground. And I've got I've got a link. I'll let y'all read it, but it's nothing for the Chinese to be in basically public squat toilet bathrooms with people having diarrhea and shit being sprayed all over the place. And they do not have, they do not have the, the hygiene and especially the, um, the repellents to, to feces that we have. They, they defecate in the streets Children routinely defecate in the streets in China. In fact, they put little kids in, they make them wear pants and they're, and the little kids aren't wearing any diapers or underwear and they slide, they cut open the bottom of the, of the crotch so that they're, these little, little boys and girls are walking around and they're, they're wearing pants, but the pants are open so that children, and children are encouraged to do this, children urinate and defecate at any time in the streets. So, I, it sounds like San Francisco. Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, we look at San Francisco, and this is this is the dynamic of of drug addicts and the severely mentally ill and, you know, the whole sodomitical culture there and the, the filth and the hellish filth that San Francisco's descended into. Um, the Chinese kind of live like that. And again, when I first saw this, I've, I know I've never been to Asia and I have no desire to go to Asia, but I mean, I, I never thought of the Chinese as being particularly filthy like that. I thought the squat toilet thing was, you know, more Middle East, India, things like that, you know? Um, no, no, the Chinese are, are bad about these things. I mean, it's, it, so it's, it's no, it's no real terrible shock between the fact that they're already compromised in their lungs, they're filthy, um, and, you know, human life has no value. And also, the thing about China, there's 1.8 billion of them. There's 1.8 billion human beings in China. If anything happens in China, the, the because of the sheer numbers, because of the the enormous population of China, anything looks like relative, you know, to 
us in the United States or relative to Europe or anything, the numbers just appear staggering. But on a percentage basis, it's minuscule just because there's so many of them. You know, the, the, the statistic that, that sums this up best for me is, you know, talking about the Chinese underground Catholic church, which is, you know, obviously been in the forefront of, of churchy news now for years as anti-Pope Bergoglio has been just throwing them all under the bus and engaging in these horrific satanic treaties and so on and so forth that's that's trying to basically eliminate the Catholic Church in China. And you read about it and you think, okay, so there's I mean, Chinese Catholics. Yeah, what? There, there can't be very many. Well, in a certain sense, that's true. There aren't very many. There's only, there's only 65 million Catholic Chinese, like underground. That's, that's more than the entire population of Italy. There are more underground Catholics in China than there are Italians in Italy. I mean, that's just... That's mind-blowing. But as a percentage of the population of China, oh, yeah, it's, it's minuscule. But China's so big that anything that happens in China becomes this ginormous, ginormous thing. And so, I'm sorry, this thing, it's, it's broken out in Italy. And, you know, you look at the numbers and it's, it's basically in line, if not less, than what normal seasonal influenza um, morbidity, meaning people who end up in the hospital or people who are already in the hospital or people who are already in nursing homes and things like that. Like we talked about, the elderly who are weak, um, they're weak in their constitution to start with. Um, so it's breaking out over in Italy. And where are the mountains of bodies? How are the numbers of people who are dying? And of course, it's it's horrible and sad whenever any human being dies. Sure, sure. But how are these numbers any different than normal seasonal influenza? And the answer is they're not. And if anything, they're less. Where are the mountains of dead bodies? Well, there aren't any. Um, you know, and they've they've basically now apparently. Italy is just is economically shut down. It's completely devastated. All of the schools are closed. All events, it's it's apparently like like the immediate aftermath of 9-11, except maybe even worse than that. Because I saw, people I was say, I, I saw a tweet today, I forget which airline, uh, some executive was talking about the fall off. I don't know if it's American or Delta or whatever, or Southwest. It really doesn't matter. Take your pick. That People are so paranoid now to be around other people, especially in a metal tube where the air is being recirculated. Right. The the level of people uh, canceling their flights or just not booking them, this this executive said it reminds him of post 9-11 and people mm -hmm. just not wanting to fly because, oh, no, the terrorists might hijack my plane again. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, the economic terrorism that goes along with it. I know you don't like the source, and I sent the, the link over, <laughs> texted it to you today. Um, our, our, our friend we don't like, uh, Liz Lev, made the comment that there's only like 29 people here in the Sistine Chapel today. Now's the time to visit. Yeah. yeah. If, oh, you, yeah. if you have the opportunity to, to go visit Italy, I'm sure right now is the perfect time to do it. Um, just like uh, if there's a big terrorist attack in France, hey, immediately afterwards is the time to do it because all the police are out and the place oh, is sure. going to be safer than anything. 
Um, if you're if you have a compromised immune system, okay, maybe you don't want to go out and about right about now, uh, especially if the weather is really cold. That's you know that's when when the flu cold and flu season hits. But if you are reasonably strong and healthy and and uh, take your vitamin C and and all the other things, there's deals on right now. Oh yeah, the all the. Uh, the hotels are all empty. Um, all of the study abroad programs have been canceled. So all of those people have been repatriated. The Airbnbs are all sitting empty. The museums are all sitting empty, but everything's open. Um, the risk would be that you would be that you would somehow get stuck over there, that you would get stuck in some sort of a, um, I don't know, in some sort of a contingency. And, you know, then, oh, boo-hoo, you're, you're, <laughs> you're stuck in Italy. And you and you get to you get to go and see you know some of the the most beautiful things in the world and the artistic patrimony of of you know Western civilization and Holy Mother Church and you've got the whole place to yourself. I mean, yeah, that there's a risk that you would get stuck in something like that, but you know, um, well, unless they go crazy. I saw that they actually clo- uh, closed down the Louvre in Paris. And and uh, I guess there could be the the risk that if you decided to act on uh, travel bargains right now, you could get over there just in time to find out that that people have said oh, we're just closing everything down. Yeah, which which could be it could be uh, either overreaction or um, common sense reaction to the fact if we're expecting twenty thousand tourists per day, but only fifty are showing up. And mm-hmm. It might be the smart fifty, but it doesn't make sense to keep things open for them. Well, like I said, I mean, it's economic terrorism first and foremost. So, you know, you've got, and that's the thing about Italy, and it's probably why Italy is the first one hit in Europe and it's hit so hard, because Italy is just crawling with Asian tourists and Chinese tourists. Um, It's by far number one tourism destination in in Europe. And so yeah, it stands to reason that that it hit Italy first. Um and so yeah, it's you're you're over there and everything everything is fine, but the economic hit at what point are restaurants and and other things, at what point are they going to have to close because they simply cannot afford to stay open because there's no clientele. Um, you know, it's the, the tourist economy is built to service X number of people, um, and hiring decisions and, and logistics and all of that, especially in the restaurant industry, I would think it's all calibrated to a certain level of traffic. And if that falls off by 95%, well, yeah, at some point, a lot of places are going to have to close. Um, just, just hope and pray that, um, that people wake up and and realize that this is all this is all a manipulation by the Freemasonic media. Um, and what they're now starting to t- talk about, and I've seen several already several news stories about this, they're talking about using this as an excuse to completely ban cash. Because cash is, of course, dirty and it's a vector of disease transmission. And so, oh, we, we have to eliminate cash. Oh, and it's also um, a way to make a payment for something and, oh my goodness, not be tracked by the state. We've well, got to exactly. ban that. Well, that, that's the issue. But what, they will, what they'll use as the excuse is, oh, it's dirty and it's going to transmit coronavirus. I suspect that what's been happening is that the, 
you know, they've been talking about eliminating cash now for years. So driving interest rates all sub-zero, because it's all tied in with that, drive interest rates negative, and they want to ban cash, and it's not been happening fast enough. And so they, they're either this project has been undertaken from the beginning with the with the mindset of we're going to use this to to usher in the cashless age once and for all or it's definitely it's the whole what's the Rahm Emanuel quote never never let a good crisis go to waste it's the whole never let a good crisis go to waste situation they're saying hey this we got to move on this people are scared to death of this of you know this seasonal flu and we're going to use this terror that we have inflicted through the freemasonic media to convince people that cash needs to be eliminated once and for all so yeah meanwhile we have the easy technology right now and i say we in the general sense the united states or just the developed western world and even the uh despotic eastern uh eastern asia we've got the ability to track people using cash every bit as well as we could if they're using a credit card. Cash has serial numbers on it. There are high definition cameras watching checkout tills. You can you can run a make on somebody's biometrics from their face immediately. You can scan the the serial number of the of the bills that they hand over to the cashier back and forth and it, it's it's every bit as anonymous and untraceable as Bitcoin, which is another way of saying it's not. Uh, but, we, that may not be fully implemented yet, but that's definitely doable. If, but if you can force the issue and if you can get it to where you you can just overnight instantly go to where everybody is at all times just using an electronic, um, you know, a card or whatever, um, then that just moves it along all the faster. You don't have to wait for all of the cameras, every face, facial recognition cameras to be installed absolutely everywhere, which they're not. They're not installed everywhere yet. They're installed in a lot of places, but they're not everywhere. If you can just eliminate the cash, you instantly go to a full 100%. Here's the card. There's no doubt about about any of the about who this who this is who this was and what you could do is then what you what is easier is you've got the card which gives you a name a social security number whatever then whatever cameras are around you it's an it's an easier thing to cross check cross reference the card with if, um, then do some sort of a biometric thing, even if it's the person, you know, walking out of the, a, a store or walking down a street within a few feet of where the card was just used or gas station that it was just used or whatever it is. Well, and um, how many people paying with cards aren't carrying a cell phone? And of those mm-hmm. cell phones, how many people remember to turn off their Bluetooth and Wi-Fi when they walk into a store? This is not new technology to have listeners uh, and, and devices when you walk into a store. Your, your cell phone, uh, the, the modern Android and iPhone cell phones, they're constantly trying to connect to Wi-Fi because, you know, when you walk, when you get home, there's the, there's the saying, home is where the Wi-Fi automatically connects. So your phone is looking for the, the network ID for, of your Wi-Fi. And there are, it's not too hard to configure a Wi-Fi access point 
that when a random iPhone walks into the store and just sends out its intermittent beacon for home network one, two, three, this thing answers back and says, yes, um, here, let's, let's begin a negotiation to make a connection, at which point the phone will transmit its, its MAC address. Um, I forget what that exactly stands for, but it is unique. And then, it says, mm-hmm. and, and then the communication will break down and say, okay, I can't connect, whatever. But at this point, I know your MAC address, and you can, you can do something similar with Bluetooth as well. And let's say it's Target, for example. These re- I'm not saying Target does. Actually, I'm pretty sure Target probably does do this, but I'm not saying this with certainty. It, it would be likely. It would be good business. The, the point is that uh, as you walk in, your phone gives up its unique ID because it gets semi-spoofed by the, the, the radios and, and the electronic eavesdropping. It's all advertising, really. You're trying to build an advertising profile on people. So mm-hmm. they know when you walk into a particular, or at least that device walks into a particular target. Cross-reference that as you're walking in through that little you know, man-trap, air-trap tunnel with, with uh, facial recognition. They can start putting a face with the MAC address. And so when that device now walks into target in another city or in another part of town, and if they can cross-reference this, hey, there are cameras watching the checkouts too. They can they can put all of this together and track you through the store to see what you're looking at. You can look at this from a a nefarious standpoint, or just we want to be able to. Uh, if I know that every time Ann goes to Target, she goes and buys dark chocolate Dove candy bars, maybe I pop a, a coupon if she's got the Target app immediately when she walks in to 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 tempt her. The point wow. is that there are many many ways to track people. And you don't actually have to literally put a chip under their skin. In fact, at that point, I don't know what you would really achieve that you couldn't do already through passive surveillance. Well, and it isn't just a question of surveillance. It's a question of coercion, ultimately. Um, If there is no cash and everybody's working on 100% 100% electronic money. Now you're it's coming into play where if you don't go along with drag queen story hour or whatever it is that you'll find one day that your card doesn't work and your your money's gone. It's been swept or or you're locked out of your out of your bank account. Um that is the ultimate goal. The ultimate it's it's surveillance and tracking is certainly part of it, but ultimately what we're talking about here is just a massive paradigm of intense coercion to to you know make sure that people are going along with the satanic Freemasonic agenda and that people are too terrified to speak out. And I think that's the next step really, or yeah, a, a yeah. future step right now. I, I, I think the most of the surveillance would fall into the category of surveillance capitalism. The more mm-hmm. information I can know about you, the most down to your minute preferences, whether it's dark chocolate dove, maybe that's my preference, but, um, Everything that that I can know about you, your habits, your tendencies, your likes, your dislikes, any any oddball things you do every fourth Thursday when it's a full moon, and I could take advantage of that to sell you something. Okay, right now that properly falls under the title of surveillance capitalism. The more I know about you, the more I can I can target an advertisement not just to your demographic but uniquely to you. Mm -hmm. That also could be used. By somebody who wants to find all the traditional Catholics and turn off their accounts until they yep. burn incense before the altar of Moloch. That's right. One, and it will come. One to that. is the it setup. One is the setup for the other. Yep, absolutely. Keep people in line, and nothing will do it faster to Americans than that. 
I mean, you already see it. Well, I, I can't say anything. I can't do anything. I can't speak out. I mean, we're, we're seeing it in the church. I mean, you're, people are just, people are terrified of, you know, being on the outs, being politically incorrect, not being able to make a living. Um, there's already people that this has happened to. Um, oh, yeah, the, the whole dynamic of self-censorship, because all you need to do is take one high-profile person and and crack down on them inordinately for something that is marginally, arguably, maybe wrong. But what you're really doing is sending a message to everybody of their their oeuvre or of their, their mindset or their milieu. Their mindset, milieu, yeah, yeah. Other, that, the other that, French word, yes. Yeah, it's like, you all better get in line or you're yep. going to get the same thing, if not worse. The and people kind of, begin to self-censor. The poster boy for this right now is Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, who's one of the best theologians and, and liturgists alive today in the English-speaking world. He is unemployable. He can't get a job anywhere at any Catholic university institution. He's unemployable. Um, he has to do exterior exterior work. Um, it, it's just it's it's already happening. And I, I, you know, I've I've corresponded with him on and off over the years, and and uh, he he knows this. I'm not I'm not um, I'm not telling secrets or anything, but, um, I, I've told you, you know, Peter, to me, you're kind of a squish, you know, <laughs> I mean, compared to me, you are a little bit of a squish. And I mean, think about that. It's just because he's, he's published, uh, articles and pieces that dare say, you know, I think we could go out on a limb here and say that the Novus Ordo Mass is intrinsically inferior, in fact, to the old Mass. Just for that, just for that, he's unemployable. I mean, it's it's absolutely, it's ridiculous. It's already starting to happen. And, you know, people in the, in very much you know the the mainstream what what we would call the neocon you know the EWTN very mainstream um, conservative Novus Ordo and I put that in in scare quote in scare quotes um, that's where the big money is you see that's where the big money is I was talking about this with um, we we're messaging about this with someone earlier today and you know it really. It's coming, it's coming to a head right now that I, for example, am a person who's just who's ideally positioned in that I can live on, you know, easily. I can I can live easily and live well on mid five figures. You know, that's that's plenty for me. Um, I'm not in any sort of a situation where I need six figures, anything like that. And so I have this, this freedom in a certain sense that I can, I can say exactly what I think at all times. Um, there is, I pretty much have no, um, sense censorship, uh, um, inflicted self-inflicted upon myself with regards to anything, any of my positions, anything, the, any of my opinions, anything like that. I have complete freedom. Whereas 
other people and certainly people in the conservative Novus Ordo side, oh, they're just, they're completely hamstrung. They live in, in abject terror at all times that their um, donation streams are going to di- are going to dry up if they take a position. I, oh, we can't say anything. We can't say anything against, against quote unquote Francis because, oh no, then we'll be called this, we'll be called that. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm eating slander and calumny for breakfast every morning at this point. And it's not only does it not bother me, it's, it's edifying to me. Um, but I'm a, I'm in this unique situation that the divine providence has absolutely put me in. And I thank God for it every day that now, you know, I think we, we mentioned this on a, on an episode not too long ago. I was, I sat down and I was doing just ballpark calculations, I make now less than 6% of what I was making at my earnings peak a decade ago. And, and it's great. And the quality of my life is, is one of the highest quality qualities of life. I would have to think of anyone in the world today. And I'm not exaggerating there. Um, you don't need enormous amounts of money, but the, also the fact that I'm that I'm an unmarried, single, completely unattached person with no uh, no dependents of any kind that factors into it heavily too. But again, that's all part of the divine providence. So um, yeah, it's it's very interesting all these dynamics about using money as a means of coercion, and it's boy, we are just barely starting to touch to get to get into that. It's starting more, in fact, over, especially in the UK, um, multiple stories I've been seeing over the last uh, couple, three months, however long it's been, where the National Health Service, NHS, which is the name of their satanic communist um, universal government health health thing in um in the UK and you know health is that's an ironic term to use because they're basically trying to kill as many people as they can they're trying to cull their population basically but they're now starting to openly say that when you go to the hospital in the UK that they are checking your online presence they're checking um, statements that you've made online and if you are not pro sodomy and if you are not pro abortion and you're not pro this and pro that um, they reserve the right to withhold care from you based upon that that they're not going to provide um, they're not going to provide care to people who are guilty of quote unquote hate speech and hate crimes which means you know that hate speech and hate crimes means being morally sane um, you know, being against sodomy and being against, you know, insane people mutilating their bodies and the mut- the mutil- the mutilation of children now, especially in in being called transgenderism, of course. That's just that's satanic. Um, that's a form of child sacrifice. But, you know, I'm preaching to the choir on that. We don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But you know what I mean? It's getting to the point. It isn't just the um you know, the, the bakeries, the people, the bakeries being set up by the sodomites, you know, make me a cake. Um, it's now getting over in the UK. It's starting where they're, they're withholding health care from people. Well, that sounds like the Chinese social credit score. Yeah, exactly. uh, they, they monitor yeah. and, and build a dossier on you based on everything you say and do on social media. And, um, 
I would imagine if you are in the position of the government, you can certainly figure out, even if somebody is posting under a pseudonym, like, I don't know, Super Nerd Media, you mm. know darn well who that really is. Oh, if yeah. you are the government, you can wield the, those those uh, warrants and figure that out. I imagine it's probably not going to be terribly long, maybe five, ten years. Uh, probably not during the Trump administration. But if Bernie Sanders were to get elected, that communist mm-hmm. freak... Um, he would be dialing up China and saying, hey, can we get some of that uh, censorship over here? Oh, absolutely. And you know what else is going to start happening? And and this is already starting to happen, is people will be encouraged to rat each other out. I mean, this is this is textbook what happens under under Marxist totalitarianism, is that oh, people start bonus. ratting each other. You get a bonus. Um, and then let's say that you have a disagreement with somebody, whether it be, you know, pers- like someone at work or, or like, you know, what I experience now online. And people start thinking, okay, I can, I can destroy this person by going and having them essentially canceled. I can, you know, report them for hate speech to their bank or something like that. I've had, I've been told that there are people, you know, in the, in the trad right Catholic blogosphere who have discussed trying to have me banned from all Ecclesia Day, um, churches and so trying to get it so that I can't go to mass and you know I just laugh at that I just that's <laughs> good luck with that um, that um, kind of runs know, counter to the whole notion of uh, providing the sacraments to anybody uh, exactly exactly oh and that that there's our segue into the reception of holy communion because I'm getting lots and lots and lots of questions about this and um, there's some points that need to be made. Let's just, we, okay, so we've already discussed coronavirus from a scientific perspective. Now let's talk about, you know, reception of Holy Communion in times of plague, let's say. Here's what everyone is completely forgetting about this. Yeah, there have been flus and, and all kinds of plagues in the, you know, back in the day in, in Europe, but obviously terrible, terrible plagues. People didn't receive Holy Communion, um, but but rarely, once, twice a year. Um, that's that's the thing that everybody today is forgetting. That today the mindset is, um, if I go to Mass, I, I I go and receive Holy Communion. And we've talked about this before on on the podcast. And um, for me, it's been. Oh, it's been a year and a half, maybe maybe going on two years now. I can't remember exactly when, but I'm telling you this this deal with the Eucharistic fast. Um, it just keeps coming into sharper and sharper and sharper focus for me. Um, you don't have to receive Holy Communion. You don't have to receive, and in fact, I think a lot of people a lot of the time shouldn't. Not because you're in a state of mortal sin, but a, because you've not really observed the Eucharistic fast as it was for the 1,900 and X years since, you know, the upper room in the year 33 up until 1957 when the Eucharistic fast was from midnight under pain of mortal sin. Okay, I can't emphasize that enough. 
Eucharistic fast until 1957 from midnight under pain of mortal sin. Why? Why was it under pain of mortal sin? Because receiving Holy Communion is a really big deal. And you can't just be casually, unthinkingly trudging up to the communion rail and just, uh, I went to Mass, receive Holy Communion. No, you need to be preparing for this. This, this is... This is huge. This is this is enormous. This is the most incredible thing in the entire universe that we can do as human beings while we are alive is receive the blessed sacrament and people just it's nothing. People are not observing a fast. People are just they're not prepared. They're not they're not going into it um acknowledging it for the intense, miraculous thing of just massive importance that it is. It's just, oh, it went to mass. And that's a problem. And our Lord told a mystic in Poland, and again, I'll try to find the citation, um, that our Lord told this mystic, and, and this, this sounds completely sane and legit, that he is as offended by casual, unthinking, unrecollected, unprepared Holy Communions. He's as offended by that as he is by making Holy Communion when you're not in the state of grace. It it makes sense. It makes absolute sense. And I think that's a lot of the problem with what's going on today and why people are making bad sacramental communions. They're making way too many of them. And when you make a bad sacramental communion for whatever reason, whether it's because you're in mortal sin or whether it's because you just ate a ginormous lunch four hours previously, you have a stomach full of uh, basically proto-sewage, Um, You've not observed any sort of fast. You've made no preparation in any way. You just went to mass that evening and trudged up to the to the communion line and got your holy communion. And then it's there's there's no it, it, it happens within a space of seconds. There's no preparation going into it. You make a bad holy communion like that. It's going to affect your ability to think because doing bad things and sinning and receiving Holy Communion unworthily, even if that unworthiness has nothing to do with being in a, having committed a mortal sin and you're not confessed of it, even if that, that unworthiness is the fact that you're not paying attention, that you're not you're not engaging this miracle of love for what it is. And the analogy that I make, and this is adult, but it, it fits. It would be like if a married couple, if one of the spouses were, they were engaging in, in the marital embrace and the conjugal embrace, and one of the spouses was sitting there on their phone, you know, texting, texting their friends, completely not paying attention, you know, reading the news, not being present in the moment of what's going on. That's an, that's obviously an imperfect analogy, but I think it drives the point home. 
that yeah, that's horrible. That's that's gross. That's awful. You shouldn't do that. That's disgusting. How, how offensive? How and that's let's bring that word into it. How offensive would that be between spouses if one of the spouses was doing that? Now think about think about receiving holy communion in those terms. How offensive it is to our Lord to receive and to not be paying attention, not to, only to not be paying attention, but to be completely engaged in something else. Um, and so when you receive Holy Communion badly, it makes you dumb. Um, receiving Holy Communion makes you stupid. And so I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people today, and of course it's a function of the fact that our, our education system has been taken over by Marxists and logic is no longer taught, et cetera, et cetera. But just the fact that people really struggle to think and just can't seem to put events in order and logical progression or anything like that. One of my primary working theories is, is that people are receiving Holy Communion badly, even including a lot of trads who just aren't aren't engaged in the moment the way that they should be. And a lot of trads do not observe the Eucharistic fast from midnight. I I I know a handful, a handful that that do that. Um and so, yeah, it's it, it's a thing, and you don't have to receive. And in fact, you shouldn't receive if you haven't made a really good preparation and you haven't fasted going into it, because it's a huge deal. And so, in terms of this, if you're, you know, if your diocese is sending down orders saying, you know, you have to receive in the hand, and you're just like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not touching our Lord. Father Z had a post up today. There's one, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of glad he put this up and he, his, um, his post is, is full of, of puns and double entendre and all this. It's kind of funny. There's one exception to this. And that is if you are at the communion rail and by some horrible accident, our Lord, you're receiving on the tongue, you're receiving kneeling on the tongue. You're a woman and our Lord were to fall like down onto your chest or down. I mean, and this happens. It could go, you know, the host could go down your blouse if you're wearing anything with any sort of a V-neck, you know. If that happens to you and you're a woman, you should use your own hands and not the priest should not have to go digging around, you know, around your chest or anything. That's just about the only instance. Which, where, by the way, is another it's, a, it's another consideration I never thought of, but if you go back to the St. Pius X rules for modesty and, and uh, where your, your neckline should be, now that I think about that, two fingers below the, the nape of the neck, it's yeah. kind of hard to drop a host in there in, in that slight spot. Yep. Uh, and yet, the other yet thing. Yet another practical reason, aside from, yes, you really are your brother's keeper in this regard when it comes to modesty, but it's another practical reason to dress modestly. Exactly. The other thing to remember, which, which I've been told by both priests and um, by men who serve, and you know, so you get, you're the you've got the server who's going along beside Father, who's holding the communion paten. I've had servers tell me that you know you don't understand how the angle that Father and the server are at, looking down at a woman, 
I mean, and it's, it's no, it's nobody's fault. You, you know, that's not what we're saying, but you just be aware of the fact of what that angle is and how that angle just, just puts everything, you know, even if in normal conversation, when you're standing, look at each other face to face, you might think, and your, your neckline might be, um, it, it might be fine. But when you're in that Diff, uh, level differential spatially and father is is standing right in front of you and is looking straight down at you it's kind of you know a bird's eye view of that and so the joke with a lot of the servers is they say i actually try to position the pattern when a woman is wearing any sort of a v-neck t- uh, uh, collar to block father's view of her, what's the, it's a French word, delicate, delicate, I can never pronounce it. Uh, uh, you know, where- The area clean, where you shouldn't be looking if you're a guy. The area where you shouldn't be looking. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, keep that in mind. The other thing is, do you, uh, super nerd at your various and sundry parishes as an ecumenical trad that you attend, is there a housling cloth on the on the communion rail? You know, that where at, at the communion rail, they come and they flip the white linen cloth over the top of it when people go up to receive i i have that where i go two of the parishes where i go have that one of them doesn't now let me see out of four that i go um yeah i'm kind of spoiled where i am two yes two no and i have no idea about the other two so you know what that's for, guys, when there when there's that housling cloth there on the communion rail, what you're supposed to do is you go up, you kneel down, and you grab the the hem of it and you hold it up underneath your, you know, underneath your chin, so that precisely so that if there is an accident and our Eucharistic Lord were to tumble and fall, that you know, you've got now this little um, you know, this little what would you call it? You got a little, a little like napkin thing situation going on to catch him, you know? Um, and then if you're a lady, if you're holding that thing up, you're holding it up exactly at, you know, so it's kind of covering. In fact, I'm sitting at my dining room table right now and I have a, a simple linen tablecloth on it and I'm holding it right now. And when you, when you hold it up, um, you're holding it up uh, it's above your sternum. I'm holding it and I'm holding it about what three inches above my sternum. So you're covering exactly that place where gentlemen are not supposed to be, you know, looking and staring. So it works out. It works out just beautifully. So you've got this little protective, um, protective place for in case the host should fall. And if, you know, you're covering yourself up, if you're a lady at that point if you're wearing any sort of a v-neck at all so you know use the housling cloth don't it's it's not just there for decoration they're flipping that thing over for a reason you're supposed to go up and grab it and hold it up to you um so I, and i see a lot of people don't i think they just think that it's there to be pretty or something and i no, that's not what that's for that's there for a reason it has a very very practical um use and in fact it has a double practical use catch our lord if he should fall and then ladies also if you need a little bit of coverage and to shield shield father's gaze from looking right down your your hoodly tootly there i did not know that about the the purpose of the cloth i i always um 
whether they're, that cloth is there or not, I always try to find you know some kind of uh, not grip, but but uh, but sense of where where the rail is, and then I'll, I'll press that against my chest, mainly to to have a, a sense of spatial awareness, so that when I close my eyes and and um, and, and and put out my tongue to receive, that I'm not accidentally moving back and forth. So right. I'll, I'll 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 use that that um, solid reference so so that I know I'm not moving, and I also make um, <laughs> I also make a point of always fully exhaling right before the priest gets to me. So I'm inhaling mildly, so I'm not blowing bad breath at him. That's just something. Uh, yeah. That's just something <laughs> that's from being a, from, yeah. from being a server, knowing that's that's uh, in the past. That's that's kind of um, yeah. It's it's better when people do that, but it, it's been a long time since I served and 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 I was always when, when I was doing the the patent I was always more concerned with uh, especially with 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 women uh, because they wear veils uh, a mm-hmm. lot of them inadvertently will fold their hand their their veil between their hands and make it almost impossible to get the the the, the patent right into their chin so I was uh, more focused yeah. on the chin more than anything else and if necessary literally forcing their hands and, and the veil back which can be a little disconcerting to them at times but it's like look I've got a job to do here and you're blocking my way so I'm going to put the patent where it needs to go so that in case the the, the host falls and that happened a couple times mm-hmm. the patent needs to be there so yep. I never Absolutely. I never thought to look anywhere else because I I had one <laughs> it needs to go right under the chin yes that yes. was my job well so there you go hope that helps a little bit. Remember folks, you don't have to receive. Make a spiritual communion. Back in the day when there were plagues and and things going on, it wasn't it wasn't an issue because almost nobody received. Um, understand how different the paradigm is that we're in right now and how recent this is. 1957, y'all. 1957. Um, well, that's so, for the midnight fast, but the more common daily reception mm-hmm. and younger reception. Well, that's Pisces 10th. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. 1903, 1907, somewhere in that range. And, you know, that's, that's printed in the front of my baronius missile that Pius X says, yes, the, the faithful should be able to receive daily. To, what Pius X never conceived of is that people would be eating. Um, I mean, now the, the, the Novus Ordo church, it's the Eucharistic fast. It, it went to three hours in 1957. And then Paul VI, I think in the 60s, probably in the late 60s sometime, he relaxed all the way to an hour that's not a fast. Three hours isn't a fast. But I mean, one hour? One hour? Are you kidding me? So there there are, and there are trads who roll into mass, and they have a stomach full of food. Um, and it's just, it's, it's no good. Pius X never envisioned, I'm convinced, he never envisioned that people would have would not be observing the Eucharistic fast from midnight and that people would be doing what people do today and just, you know, walking up and receiving communion without, without any thought, really, really, without any thought of what they're doing. That is just this totally casual thing. You don't have to receive. In fact, if you, if you make spiritual communions, it will increase the quality of the sacramental communions that you make. And so the answer would, would if someone put it to me, well, Anne, if where you are, if some, if some 
commandment came down that, you know, there's no communion on the tongue and it's, it's not, it's not permissible, then I wouldn't receive. I'd make a sacramental communion. Excuse me. I'd make a, I'd make a spiritual communion. No, I'm, I'm not going to receive on the hand. We're not going back to that. We're not going to do that. I'm not a priest. My hands are not consecrated. I have no business touching the host ever. And I'm, rem- I'm remi- reminded of the story of, I think this was during World War II, somewhere in, in I, I don't know where, you'll, you'll know this story. Um, there was a church that was destroyed and somehow, or it was destroyed and then ransacked. And there were, somehow the Chiborium and the Tabernacle got upended, overturned, and there were a bunch of hosts in the Tabernacle. And they're all spread all over the floor. And there was one little girl, and I can't remember where this is. This was in China. China. She would sneak in. She would sneak in once per day, and she would go up and and because you can only receive one host per day, she would get down on her hands and knees and she would stick out her tongue, and she would pick a host up just with the moisture of her tongue, and she did this day after day after day until. All of until all of the hosts had been consumed. I want to say it was thirty or thirty-three days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was it was significant. But that little girl, you say, well, oh, our Lord is there on the floor. He's he's there on the floor. You got you. Uh, you can you can use your hands. And I mean, he'd understand that. Uh, uh, this little girl was like, nope, I am not. I am not touching our Lord with my hands. I will receive on the tongue and I'll, it'll, if it takes 33 days to get to consume these 33 hosts. And that's exactly what she did. And that just tells you right there. Don't, don't touch our Eucharistic Lord. Don't do it. That's my advice. Make a spiritual communion. And the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, every priest I know or would have anything to do with, if it got to the point where they were, um, you know, banning the public, uh, public distribution of communion on the tongue, um, you could just ask father, Hey, can I, can I stop in and receive Holy communion in the sacristy at some point, you know? And he'd be like, yeah, of course it, no priest is going to say, no, I am not going to give you Holy Communion except in the hand because of disease. I mean, that's just stupid. That, In fact, it's cleaner. Um, communion on the tongue is cleaner than this business of, of just getting people's hands involved. Hands are just filthy. You want to know how, how viral infections and things like this spread. It's on people's hands. Um, hands that were just so on the pews in front of you that other kids were sneezing on at the previous mass. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. People have been sweating all over and, oh yeah, yeah. It's much cleaner to receive on the tongue. It's it's all an excuse by the enemies of, of Christ and his holy church to do as much as they can to try to ban these things. I mean, it hasn't happened here where I, where I am, but if it did, it's not a problem. It's not a problem for me anyway, because I make spiritual communions more often than not. So not, not sacramentally receiving is not, is not 
the end of the world for me. And I would, I would encourage a lot of people out there to just stop and think about this, make better sacramental communions, um, by increasing the percentage of spiritual communions that you make. And then when you get in a situation where potentially you have to make a spiritual communion, um, then, you know, oh, you're, you're fine and you're prepared. Yeah. And, and, um, I guess increase your devotion and, and awareness of what Holy Communion is. And yes. In the case of that, uh, again, the Chinese girl who who was um, receiving our Lord off the floor, she was breaking mm-hmm. into or sneaking into a, an, a, a guarded church, guarded by armed guards of the Chinese oh, yeah. military. And the, poli- uh, the police, the priest was actually imprisoned in the church. So he was a witness to this girl doing this. She'd come in and, and kneel in adoration for an hour receive communion and then ha- and then do post communion adoration for a while she was never detected until after receiving the last host mm-hmm. uh, she had finished her adoration she accidentally bumped something she was discovered and martyred on the spot yeah yeah yep she she was risking her life and ultimately paid for it with her life but the divine providence made sure that she was able to complete her task as it were and that's Oh, that there's a concept for you. The divine providence will keep us all here until we've completed our our respective tasks. Don't you worry about that. So, well, some of us are so far behind, we're never going to die. So. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Saint Joseph, um, the the patron saint and protector of the church, and uh, the patron of getting things done, and and uh, patron of workmen. This is now the month of March, and uh, the March is. Set aside your feelings, all you Irish people. March is the the month of Saint Joseph, and uh, he he is the universal protector. And I was just hearing a sermon recently talking about the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, that the precursor or a necessary uh, co element of the triumph of the Immaculate Heart is going to be the due veneration of Saint Joseph, uh, her her true, honest, legitimate spouse. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I've, I've heard many cases that, that or I've heard the, the, that said that true devotion to St. Joseph is going to be one of the last things before end times that's revealed. And it's going to be one of the ways that the elect don't fall during that, that final um, persecution during which even the elect might be confused. So uh, it's not like we, we don't have access to St. Joseph currently. It's not like we don't have access to the Memorari of St. Joseph. His feast day is coming up, and um, maybe if you're going to do a communion fast and, and prepare for uh, communion on a solemn feast day, Feast of St. Joseph is a good one. And, of oh, course, yeah. all of the husbands uh, or, or, or all the men listening, uh, whether your name is Joseph or not, St. Joseph is your, your patron. Um, if you are, if you have to earn money and make a living, St. Joseph is your patron. If you've ever had to go on a, uh, on a job search in, in a uncertain circumstance, um, St. Joseph had to take a sudden trip from, from the Holy Land down to, to Egypt and, and, um, find work and they didn't have, uh, carpenter recruiters to, to call and he wouldn't have spoken the language necessarily. So St. Joseph is a universal patron, uh, one of the few in, in the church. So, uh, he's extraordinarily powerful and um, definitely pray to him. <laughs> I can't, I can't uh, un- underestimate that enough or can't, I yeah. can't stress it enough. He, we have this uh, marvelous patron. We all need to pray to. Absolutely. And um, 
it, one of the things that struck me about Rome um, was that there is, there are no, there are really no churches in Rome dedicated to St. Joseph. I mean, there might be out in the suburbs and some new construction, you know, post-war construction Novus Ordo church. There are no churches in the center of Rome that are dedicated to St. Joseph. And so <laughs> I always made the joke that if I'm ever, if I'm ever, you know, crowned Holy Roman Emperor or whatever it is, that the first thing I'll do is I'll tear down the, um, if you've ever been to Rome, there's a huge monument to um, the Freemasonic Republic. And I'm not, I'm not being facetious. That's exactly what it is. And it's, it's one of the major landmarks in the city of Rome. It's absolutely enormous. And it's, it's at Piazza Venezia. It's this huge white uh, marble. It's called the altar of the fatherland or something like that. And um, if I'm ever crowned Holy Roman Emperor, I will tear that down and I will build a massive, massive basilica to St. Joseph right there. And um, because it's just, it's weird. It's really weird that there's nothing. I mean, you know, in Rome, there's everybody, there's a, there's a church to everybody. There's a church every, every 40 yards or so, literally in the center of Rome, not one to St. Joseph. So uh, yeah, after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart, that will absolutely be, uh, that will be corrected and rectified. Well, maybe as part of the the process of of cleansing and and renewal, maybe the Basilica of St. Peter's will be leveled and it'll be replaced by the Basilica of St. Joseph. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know if that would happen because you're still going to have the rock. I mean, as long as we're all here on on earth, there is the church militant and the church militant on earth will always be built upon the rock of Peter. I can't, I, I can't imagine. And of, we're also remember St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is standing directly over Peter's tomb. And Peter was crucified just to the, what direction would that be? Just a few yards to the South of the Basilica. I mean, it's right there that it was a, it was a circus. It was a, you know, a, a racetrack and all that. And he was crucified there in the middle of that circus. And so, um, there, that's all very much, very much tied to Peter spe- specifically and personally. Um, so okay, I was just thinking out loud. It, it, it certainly couldn't, it, it might be better than the way things are currently, but yeah, that's true. It makes more sense for if St. Peter's was ever leveled, to mm-hmm. to for it to be rebuilt under the name of St. Peter's. But yes, it there definitely needs to be a basilica or a major basilica to St. Joseph. Oh yeah, a, a huge one. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, don't forget about him. His feast is on March 19th. And even if you're if you're being good during Lent and you're not eating yummy things like donuts, there's a very famous type of donut called a Saint a St. Joseph donut that um and it's usually <laughs> it's they're really good. They're filled usually with a with a uh, yellow, well, it's not lemon cream, but it's a kind of a, you know, they're cream-filled, cream-filled donuts. So um, <laughs> super yummy. So a lot of people eat their eat their little St. Joseph donut on um, the 19th of March, but you can only have one. You can't have like, an, you can't have an entire box. You can only have one. So be good. Well, in a lot of traditional parishes will also have uh, the St. Joseph table. And this is a, a um, typically it's run by by somebody who's from a Sicilian family, and and so they that this has been very strong through their their family tradition all the way back to the old country, 
and it, it comes out of Sicily. If I remember the story correctly, there was a famine or horrible uh, yields of crops, which I guess is kind of the same thing, honestly. And and this was going on, and they prayed to St. Joseph for delivery or deliverance. And uh, things turned around, and, the, and, and everything was uh, turned around. But because St. Joseph's Feast almost always, I think it actually has to always fall during Lent, sometimes even during Holy Week. Yeah, the, yeah it has to The St. Joseph's Table is all meat free it's a lot of it's a lot of uh, it's a keto nightmare basically a lot of bread <laughs> a lot of pastries uh pastas uh the things you can eat during lent but mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of, of of also sharing this with the poor raising money uh also to be shared with the poor and and uh, just just a lot of awesome italian people doing italian well sicilians doing sicilian things so yes and i'm Rich. sure the sicilians will tell you very much there's a difference between sicilians and italians oh absolutely yeah they're basically different races and yes they they will they will be quick to tell you that again italy is a is a freemasonic construct it's italy should be five six separate nations at minimum and they'll they'll all tell you that too <laughs> well just so like again, france just like france should be about five different countries germany is 16 states that used to be independent nations yep all the rest yep. It's we're going in the wrong direction. We need way more independent sovereign nations, not clumping everything together. Again, you kind of now look back and you say, oh, this whole model of the United States of um, clumping everything together. um, It really was a Freemasonic construct. And the Civil War obviously just accelerated all of that and made it even worse. So, but we shall not get into the war of Northern aggression against the South in in this episode. We should do a Civil War episode. I bet, I bet out in the, in the listenership there, I'd be willing to bet that we probably have some Civil War buffs and some Civil War, you know, armchair experts that we should, we should do a Civil War show. Um, if that sounds interesting, podcast at barnhart.biz, and then I will order and listen to the other two volumes of Shelby Foote's four and a half days of audio of listening to the Civil War. I, I bought the first volume because I was hoping that there would be a really good explanation of, of the uh, political philosophy of why the South thought they had the right to secede, and it just kind of brushed over. It's like, yeah, they thought they could secede, and then it proceeds to go on to every single minute detail of every single battle. If you want to know where Grant's uh, adjutant got coffee on the morning uh, before yeah. the Battle of Vicksburg, you can find that in this book, but you can't find in-depth discussions and explications of the political philosophy, which kind of annoys me. So Yeah, well... Research can be done. I'd have to read up too. And um, there's the Civil War is just a, it's a massive amount of data. Uh, And it was at the point where they were able to get so much recorded and so much was saved that we we really do know a lot about what went on in detail. And so, yes, any of our military listeners, I'd be willing to bet that we've got some Civil War guys out there. So, you know, let us know. Send us something. Send us something interesting. Something um, you know, germane that fits into the whole Barnhart podcast. The kind of stuff that we talk about, and we'll do a Civil War show. And you'll have to send me some notes on this. I, I want to say that one of the reasons why the history of Civil War is so interesting is that it was one of the first wars 
where almost everybody, not just the officers, but even the enlisted people on both sides were fully literate. And there's a, mm-hmm. a lot of, of the letters kept from, from the people on both sides, you know, before they died or whether they lived all the way through, there was a lot of, of documentary evidence of what it was like day to day on the march, on, on the, on the retreat, on the attack. Uh, so, that, so if you ever wanted to go as far back in history as possible and just get a, a deluge of information from both sides, that's the, that's the place to go. Um, Napoleon's wars, you still had a bunch of illiterate peasants fighting on both sides. Uh, but the U.S. Civil War, folks were pretty well educated. At least yeah. they, they had their reading and writing and arithmetic down. Well, and if you if you want to feel bad about your spell about yourself, especially if you do anything in terms of writing ever, um, just read read the Civil War letters from just the normal everyday, you know, guys, uh, enlisted men, and the quality of the prose and the beauty, and and the sentiments that are conveyed. And I I, I read things like that, and I'm just continually shocked. And I. I if I had to sit down and write something that was that prosaically and sentimentally beautiful, I don't think I could. I don't think I'd be capable of it. You know, I can write, you know, the way I write with this blunt forthright explaining this, da 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 da, da you know, but um, the letters that those people would write to each other and the beauty of them and the things that they would say to each other that, you know, we've got all this communication and we're, we're constantly messaging and emailing and doing this, that, and the other. And no one ever says anything like that to anyone anymore. No one ever, you know, conveys you know, deep, deep sentiments of, of love the way that those people just did it like nothing and men you know completely virile macho men it was just nothing to to sit down and write a letter and you know tell people how much you love them it's 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 really uh really interesting it's a really interesting commentary on on our, our culture and the art of calligraphy as well. These are all handwritten oh, yeah. with quill and ink and the, the beautiful handwriting in almost every case. Even the doctors wrote legibly back then. Yep, absolutely. Everybody did. And and the boys, the whole notion today that, oh, boys just by virtue of the fact that they're boys have terrible, awful, horrible penmanship. And that's just taken for granted. No, that that is completely false. Boys have terrible penmanship today because... Nobody's being taught anything. Nobody's being taught penmanship at all. And so, you know, you just leave leave a boy alone, leave him to his own devices. And good grief. I mean, even when I was a kid, I remember I would marvel at the way some of the boys that I was in school with would just hold their pen. You know, they, they were holding it just completely contorted like a claw with their, with their wrist turned so that they were almost upside down and they were just scrawling on the piece of paper. And it was just, it was, it's really sad that, um, that people just can't even, can't even write in cursive anymore. I was, what was I doing? Who was I talking to? Talking to somebody about cursive. And I sat down and I just, you know, opened up whatever and, and found, you know, two, two sentences and said, all right, I'm going to write these two sentences in cursive. And I was just disgusted by how it turned out. I mean, it looked, it looked awful. My penmanship was more sophisticated and better looking in cursive when I was 
10 years old than what I can do while I'm sitting here at the age of 43, concentrating on writing. It's, uh, <laughs> and I'm talking about writing an actual cursive, not my, you know, my hybrid hand. I mean, I have handwriting now and it's legible, but it's, it's print. It's not, it's, it's kind of a, it's a pigeon, it's a pigeon. I wouldn't even call it. No, it's more print than cursive. It's like, I think most of us are nowadays. It's print with a few letters connected, but not many, you know? Um, and my, my hand printing is, is pretty well legible still, but sitting down and writing in the proper cursive that I was taught in second grade by Mrs. Wilson. No, that's just, that's a joke. Now I need to, I need to do better and start just forcing myself to sit down and write in cursive every day in proper posture with with a proper fountain pen which actually you can get disposable fountain pens on amazon for a pretty inexpensive price or uh, i'm actually trying to order things not through amazon anymore but uh actually fountain fountain pens are really hard to find (laughs) outside of amazon you can't even find them on walmart.com it's kind of weird but uh pilot makes some pretty good I mean, I mean, they're good-ish. I mean, if you if you're out of practice, get some wide margin uh, paper like you hit, like you used in third or fourth grade. Get a fountain pen, and yeah, if you're if you haven't done cursive in quite a while, your first uh, your first pass at trying to write something is going to be effectively visually encrypted. You're not even going to be able to read it the next day. But mm-hmm. if you want, it's like anything. If you want to get good at playing golf or shooting free throws, well. Except if you're Shaq O'Neal, if you want to, if you want to get good <laughs> at something, it, it, the whole point is deliberate practice. Find what you want to improve on and practice at it. And maybe mm-hmm. it's going to look completely unintelligible for the first forty-five times you write something, but maybe somewhere around the sixtieth day, it'll start looking good. And yep. if you have, if you hold the pen correctly, and, and this may sound really stupidly rudimentary, but if you don't sit correctly, if you don't hold the pen correctly, you will fatigue your hand to the mm-hmm. point that you can't write more than half a page. Saint Jerome, he he, how how many hours per day did he write and translate? If he was holding his quill wrong, he would have cramped up and he wouldn't have been able to finish. St. Thomas Aquinas, he wasn't translating. He was getting inspiration to write what he was writing, but he, would, I'm sure, would write for hours and hours at a time. The monks who copied, uh, I'm saying the same thing many times over. If you write correctly, and this is from posture, um, the, the grip of the, of, mm-hmm. of the pen, the orientation of the paper, there's a way to do this that you can write indefinitely without cramping your hand or getting, getting tired or getting sore. And if you do get tired in, in, in the hand, wrist, arm, sore, whether limp wrists or not, you're probably doing something wrong. And, yeah. And maybe you need to take a, a, a calligraphy class. When I was a kid in second and third grade, both of my teachers, Mrs. Wilson in second grade, Mrs. Kading in third grade, they were Catholics and they were raised in Catholic school and they had gorgeous, gorgeous cursive handwriting. And of course, that's who was teaching us cursive. And I can't remember which one of them, I think it was probably Mrs. Kading. I think she, she said that when they were kids in Catholic school and the nuns were teaching them um, cursive writing, that you know, the kids would all be sitting, they'd have their exercise and that they'd be sitting there doing their cursive writing exercises. And the sister would walk around and she would sneak up, sneak up. She would walk up behind somebody and she would reach down real fast and boop, grab the pen out of their hand, just pull it straight out of their hand. And the reason that she would do that is because 
if you were holding the pen so tight that she had any resistance when she came up and pulled the pen out of your hand, then you were holding it too hard. So you were supposed to hold the pen really, really lightly, really softly. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If you if you sit and hold a pen in your hand and like clench and you can feel it go all the way up the bottom of your forearm, you know, and you, of course that's how people get carpal tunnel and, and all that, you know, bad stuff that happens. Um, but I always, I always remembered that she said that the sister would come up and she'd grab the pen out of our hands. So don't, don't, you know, put a death grip on the pencil or pen that you're using. You should hold it in your hand very, very loosely and lightly. And it makes sense. Yeah. So there you go. There's your lessons in Catholic penmanship from my childhood in public school. <laughs> well, it's also uh, lessons in, in civilized and cultured living. Uh, if, mm -hmm. if you can write beautifully, there, there's you know, the, the message is the medium, as Marshall McLuhan used to say. If you, if you get a letter from somebody and it's all uh, laser printed except for a scrawling signature, which looks vaguely like their handwriting, versus if you get a, a beautifully handwritten letter from somebody, you could tell the whole thing was done by hand and not an auto pen or a font that's made to look like cursive. That's a right. huge difference. Yeah. I mean, one literally is the work of their hand. They took the time to do it all out by hand and put that effort into it as opposed to just bang it out or, or dictate it um, through their phone or something and then, and then dump it to word and print it. Um, I never do that. Um, uh, but, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's, it's, it's that literal personal touch um, that, that goes a long way. It, it's, it, it's a civilized thing and we should aspire toward it. Indeed. On the flip side of civilization, there is politics. And um, let's see, we're an hour 24 in. Do we want to talk about this? Uh, let's call this one. Let's, let's save our ammo. I'll, I'll just sum it up and say that, uh, that the presidential race is yet another race that Elizabeth Warren does not belong to. <laughs> very good. Very, very good. <laughs> you, you've, been, you've been waiting for that for days, haven't you? <laughs> Uh, I might have been sitting on that one with great anticipation. Might have been yes. sitting on that one, yes, sir. <laughs> well, it was worth it. It was worth the wait. Well done. <laughs> the email address for the podcast, because I guess we're going to wrap it now. The email yeah. address for the podcast, if you have feedback, uh, comments about the Civil War or comments about specific topics you want to cover in future podcasts. Um, mm. I did I did make a, ref a call out on, on Twitter today. Uh, it to find out if somebody had anything they wanted to talk about because I wasn't sure. What did I say right before we started? We have like 20, 30 minutes worth of, of content. And what are we now? An hour and 40 minutes in? Yeah. That's um, <laughs> about typical. Um, so in, anything to, to bring up on the podcast, but especially uh, topics of penmanship, uh, stories of Sister uh, Schmuckatelli rap, uh, pulling the pen out of your hand and then wrapping your knuckles if it didn't happen, mm. uh, but especially Civil War stories. Uh, podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Anne's benefactors. At least one mass every single day, more likely two or three maybe? I don't know. At least, mm -hmm. at least one, but sometimes mm -hmm. multiples. Uh, and of course, once a week, a requiem mass for everybody who has died the previous week. As I say, every single podcast, please pray for these priests. Uh, it's impossible to pray for them enough. Um, they, they definitely need our prayers. Uh, the Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you found something of value in this or in previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com for the mailing address. Um, and Richard is back. 
And there was an anonymous donation who said, don't mention anything. Actually, he said, don't mention anything. But um, there was an anonymous donation. And, and also to James. Uh, I almost forgot him. Um, thank you, James. I did not forget you. Uh, so, but right now the electronic donations are down. Uh, one, one feedback I got was, was somebody looked, looked at the show notes last time and said, Bitcoin, you got a Bitcoin donation address. Didn't you just rail against this recently? It's like, okay, look, I'm not putting that out there because I have a, an intrinsic love or, or, or valuation for Bitcoin. I'm certainly not uh, speculating about it, but for the time being, uh, because PayPal is offline, uh, at least for me, until I get the, the tax stuff sorted out and get the LLC sorted out, that's all going to come back later, hopefully soon, but later this year. Uh, at least for the time being, the kinds of things I need to buy for keeping the, the website going is, is like website hosting, uh, renewing domain names. The providers I use will accept Bitcoin for payment. Um, and it's not just limited to um, computer hardware or domain uh, domain names or, or uh, web hosting. Something. What was it? What did you just pay for? Uh, it renewed, With... a, it renewed a, a domain. Oh, okay. All right. But yeah, something, something else. Much. Well, something else I noticed recently. I I had to buy a, a annual subscription for Microsoft Office, and I was kind of surprised, and it was quite chucklesome to me that I realized that one of the payment options there, in addition to credit card, was Bitcoin. I I remember hearing something about Microsoft taking Bitcoin, but I'd forgotten about where they were doing it. So it's possible that if if you, if hosting were to be done on Azure, maybe they take Bitcoin credit there. I don't know. But at least for Microsoft Office, you could buy it with Bitcoin. The, the point I'm getting at is, yes, you could donate uh, to Super Nerd Media with Bitcoin, and that's just for doing technical things. It's not because yeah. I actually believe in Bitcoin as a long-term thing. I would probably transfer it out to a USD um, <laughs> denominated thing as quickly as possible. Um, but that is an option. But if you'd rather stick to things that are more common and work, there's a mailing address. And uh, that, like I said, that's what James and, and Richard did and the anonymous person who won't be named. Um, and at that, I'll stop rambling and let you talk about Matthew seventeen twenty. Matthew seventeen twenty. Every day, pray, pray, pray. Keep praying, keep praying, and fast. I'm doing it twice a week. Do what you can. Uh, fourfold intention that um, Bergoglio be publicly recognized as re and removed as anti-pope and the whole thing be nullified, that Ratzinger, Pope Benedict Ratzinger, be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living pope since April of 2005, that anti-pope Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace in the fullness of time, and someday achieve the beatific vision, and that likewise Pope Benedict Ratzinger repent of whatever he might need to repent of, um, die in a state of grace in the fullness of time, and someday achieve the beatific vision. Nothing else will do. Go big or go home. And there was go some other there was some other feedback about uh, about prepping, but we'll save that for probably. We should probably do a dedicated feedback and ask Anne episode. It's been a while since we've done that. Mm -hmm. And yep. uh, some, some definitely some uh, entertaining feedback items. So about, about the prepping that that one, I, I, I suspected we were going to get a, a lot of comments about, oh, you forgot to include this and forgot to include that, which I was trying to go pretty much basic. I wasn't trying to really uh, hunker down and prepare for 20 years. Um, and we didn't even get into firearms and all that. So, you know, I mean, that I, I think I think I briefly goes, I think I briefly mentioned <laughs> I briefly mentioned it, but we didn't really get into it. Yeah. Um, oh, the other big feedback point which I thought was hilarious was we got two or three emails and, and uh, Twitter comments about <laughs> about dissing Hungarian. <laughs> Aww. Aww, I, we, poor Hungarians. <laughs> yeah, well, 
It's just not it's just not on my top 10 list of languages to learn on Duolingo and no Klingon is not in the top 10 even though that's actually a language apparently on Duolingo but <laughs> We need to learn how to sign off in Hungarian now just to, just as a, a a show of goodwill to our our Hungarian listener contingent so okay that's we'll put that on the to-do list next time we are going to say something in Hungarian. So tune tune in to episode 105 of the Barnhart podcast because there will be Hungarian. And hopefully my Hungarian is more uh, understandable than my uh, cursive is legible. Uh. <laughs> okay, I think I've annoyed my wife long enough because she always wonders why is there still time left and you already finished your wrap up. Until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. God bless.